Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we gather here uh, this day um, seeking to grow in our relationship with you, seeking to, uh, to worship you. We do this through our singing, through our, uh, through our giving, through our fellowshipping with one another. We do this through the studying of your word. And as we find ourselves in this section of Hebrews, we ask that your spirit would guide us. May he illuminate the meaning of this passage, help us to understand what was going on historically in context, uh, that we would have um, a greater understanding of the impact of this passage. Father, we ask that you would help us as uh, people who are here today in various uh, places in our relationship with you, in various seasons of our life, in various times of trials or joys. We know that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so we come, Lord, asking that your word would be used by you to minister to each one of us where we are. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that you would prompt us. We pray that you would convict us. Ultimately, Lord, we ask that you would increase our faith and help us to endure the race that you have placed before us. We seek to honor you with all that we are. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. 
in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom, the father, whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear its message today. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So we're kind of entering back in here. Uh, We are concluding chapter 11, which is known as the the Hall of Faith, the Heroes of Faith, uh, to sort of ease back in. If we were to go back to chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, we would uh, be reminded that the recipients of this letter were experiencing persecution. We don't know much about them. We, we believe that Hebrews was written sometime between A.D. 65 and A.D. 68, this is two years before Nero really got going to town and eventually had, uh, had the temple destroyed. Uh, he did, as Jesus prophesied, that sto- every stone was flipped apart mainly so they could get the gold that, that was used to build it. Um, they were in the early pains of this great persecution that was rising. Uh, the author reminds him at the end of chapter 10 that they were not to lose hope, that they were to not lose confidence, that they had confidence based on the work that Jesus did on the cross, that his work was complete, it was finished, it was sufficient. They had access through him to the holiest of holies. They were encouraged in that section in verse 36 that they had need of endurance, that they... uh, had a rough road ahead of them, and it would take faith uh, to go through this journey. In verse 39 we read, But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And so we've worked our way over a number of weeks through chapter 11, looking at these great men and women uh, from the Old Testament and their lives and their example and how they lived by faith, it really resulted in a term we would say, uh, not faith, but faithfulness, that their belief, their trust resulted in action, and how they'd lived their lives was a beautiful thing. Today we were supposed to pick up in verse 35, and we read, when we received, and women, when we, uh, women received back their dead by resurrection, as I 
Joel and I had a little on-the-fly uh, rehashing how the things should be broken up. Uh, in the midst of having the two boys around me, I, I realized we probably should have stopped at 31 last week. Uh, we briefly flew over, and I just told him, I said, hey, what, what more shall I say for time will fail me if I continue? I'm like, just use that. If he didn't have time, you don't have time. Just kind of fly over it. Uh, today, when I come to this verse, women received back their dead by resurrection. What, I, what I'm forced to realize is that that part of the verse, the first half, belongs in the previous section. Um, so verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war. This is one of those verses that I've had highlighted in my Bible for years. Anna teases me sometimes when she goes through my Bible and sees the contrasting things that we highlight. She's like, why would you highlight became mighty in war? Like if you go through all of my Bibles and from my earlier Christian life, that verse is almost always in there. And the reason it's in there is because I was a young Christian, was a young Navy SEAL, and this is the one that spoke to me. And like I wanted to honor God with what I was doing as it related to combat. So this is one that by their faith, they became mighty in war. There's many Christians in the military that have this verse highlighted. Another one, Proverbs, but I don't need to get sidetracked. He continues that they put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These are all victorious stories. If you go through the Old Testament, there's examples of women losing sons, losing husbands. There's a couple stories where prophets came and they rose the children rose the husband back to life through resurrection. This first paragraph, we all want to be a part of that. This is like great times. You live for the Lord. Everything goes great. It's wonderful. Fires you up. But then we come to the and others. And there's a drastic turn. Triumph turns to tragedy. And we... Read and others were tortured. I don't know what you think of when you imagine torture. A few weeks ago, my dad, who I've shared, you know, he's in the early stages of Alzheimer's. He's got macular degeneration. His eyesight is is fading, and he's expressed to me, and he's got macular, he's got a neuropathy in his feet. So he's a really a handful to take out in town. And he expressed to me that he really would love to go to a hockey game with the boys. So I'm thinking, how am I going to take my unstable, half-blind dad to a hockey game? And I see during the preseason that the goals have a game in Ontario. It's on a Thursday. It's at 10 a.m. I'm like, this is a wonderful time to take my 83-year-old dad to a hockey game. I'll get tickets on the very front row on the glass so he'll be able to see the puck. Nobody's going to be there. It's going to be wonderful. As I, you can tell the story's going somewhere else because we're talking about torture. As I pull into the parking lot, I suddenly see my problem. My problem is, is that there's 200 school buses in the parking lot. 
and it dawns on me what I'm in for. And I had no idea what I was in for, but we got in there, and then it slowly started filling up. The entire arena is filled with young children. And then to make things worse, the people who are running the program, they keep playing a clip from SpongeBob SquarePants, so the kids are screaming the song over and over and over again. It was torture. <laughs> we eventually look at each other and say, how about we just skedaddle before they release all these kids? And so I've got my dad the blanket trying to watch the two boys and... That's what comes to my mind. <laughs> but this word tortured is far worse than that. This is a word that describes being stretched out. It's an idea of where they historically they know they would take the limbs and they would spread them as far as you could possibly be stretched apart. Your legs going each one way, your arms going another way. They would do it over like a rock. And as you were stretched out, they would begin beating you until death. And if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. Look at the next phrase. Not accepting their release. So now we're talking about individuals who by faith followed after their Lord. Part of their following after him meant that they were tortured, that they were spread out, that they were beaten into death, at some point they had the opportunity to be released. But they refused to recant. They refused to change their testimony. They refused to turn away. They did not allow themselves to be released so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. This is where you would have a group of accusers. The condemned would either be placed in a hole or strapped down on the ground. Each individual would be able to pick up a, a stone. Don't think a rock that you can throw, but think of a 10 to 30 pound rock that you could lift and you would walk over the individual and you were allowed to drop it once on them. And this would continue until they were dead. They were sawn in two. Our minds all probably went the wrong direction because you're imagining how this would happen. And so most of us probably think across the body like this, what they would do being valley center residents. When you slaughter a pig or any animal, you take them by the hind feet, you hoist them up, and then you basically split from tail to head. That is exactly what would happen to them. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. And if you were paying attention, this one should suddenly jump out at you. The light bulb should come on and you should suddenly see a contrast and it should stop you in your tracks because if you were to go back to verse 34, the good paragraph, those who by faith did all of these wonderful things escaped the edge of the sword. Now we come to verse 37. By faith, they were put to death by the sword. You have the same faith in both camps and yet you have two different outcomes. By faith, one escaped the sword. By faith, the other put to death by the sword. 
They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They were running for their lives by faith. And in there, the part I skipped over is the part that gives me goosebumps. Men of whom the world was not worthy is a parenthetical statement that's inserted by the author as he reflects on these great men and women who by faith endured such hardship. The, between verses 32 and 38, we are immediately challenged by those in the prosperity gospel that will tell you that if you just come to Jesus, your whole life will get better, all your problems will go away. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you're in an Islamic part of the world, you come to faith, you're disowned by your whole family, potentially executed. And so what we learn here is by faith, these people followed after God. Uh, What's the author trying to show us? Verse 39, and all of these having gained approval for their faith, did not receive what was promised. Another light bulb should go off because if we go back to verse 33, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, and what? Obtained promises. So one group by faith, they saw the promises. The other group by faith, they didn't receive what was promised. And the author is promoting faith. Trusting God, not in the results, not in the outcome. What he wants us to get is it's about faithfulness. Trust God for the outcome, whether good or bad. We glorify him regardless of the circumstance. And verse 40 is difficult. I'm in the first, I've looked in every translation uh, to try to understand every commentary, to try to get an explanation for this because it doesn't make sense. He's talking about them, their great faith. And all of these, verse 39, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Same sentence, because God had provided something better for them, is what I would anticipate reading. But it says, but God had provided something better for us. What in the world do the recipients of Hebrews, or what in the world do we have anything to do with this great life that they lived? He continues and he says, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, I'm not going to say that I found some commentary or some way to translate the Greek to make this a little bit easier to swallow. The best thing that I read was Henry Ironside, what he says on this verse. He says, in other words, we may say of the Old Testament saints that their souls were all safe in God's keeping, Their eternal salvation was absolutely assured, but the work which all this rested had not yet taken place. They were, if we may so speak, saved on credit. In the cross, their responsibility was discharged, and now they, with us, are made perfect. What I can say from this and where the author is going, there seems to be some interconnectedness between those who have followed God in the past and the present and the future, that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves, where we're grafted in 
And we somehow and how we live are connected to them. And so from this, as he's made his case that when you came to Christ and you accepted him as your Savior, by faith you didn't enter a playground, by faith you entered a battlefield. And he wants to get the readers to have their heads screwed on straight so that they would be able to navigate the race that is set before them. And so he continues, therefore, this connecting thought after everything he said, probably tying back to the end of chapter 9, or chapter 9, chapter 10, excuse me, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He lists all of these heroes of the faith. Therefore, based on everything that I've said, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So immediately what they would have had in their mind is these Roman Colosseums, a few weeks ago when Anna and the girls were off in Spain, in Santa Ponce, the town in which the seminary that we support is set, there is a Roman Colosseum, Italica. I'm probably saying it incorrectly, but I won't put her on the spot. But So Anna sends me video in this Roman Colosseum of the girls like running some laps. It's like this is the picture that they would have had in mind. They're encouraged to run their race, and in the stands are these people these witnesses. And it's easy to get the idea of the word witness sort of confused. In some sense, you'd think, oh, they're in the stands cheering us on as we're running. All of these saints who have gone before us, that they're looking down on us and they're cheering us on. I don't think that that's, uh, I'm not convinced that that's what is happening. Um, in heaven, I, don't, I think for us, if you're in heaven, to look down on this earth, it would be far too painful. But I think there's something similar. That see, their lives, that they're witnessing, they're testifying of the goodness of God, the, the reliability of God, his trustworthiness. And so their lives in the stands, as you're running your race in the Christian life, their image, their story their, their testimony should be radiating in our minds, propelling us forward. The closest thing I can explain to relate to this is, I'm getting older, I recognize in this church that I'm always reminded how young I am, but I'm as old as I've ever been today. <laughs> and Gunner today is far jigglier than he was many years ago. The Gunner today has... Uh, far more pains than he did many years ago. In my mind, however, if I'm on a run or doing a workout, my mind seems to think that I'm still back then. I could be for a nice slow jog going somewhere and some 16-year-old kid that's got national titles for being the fastest runner in the nation, he passes me in my mind. Gunner goes, I can take that kid. And so I'll sprint, I'll catch up if I can, and I'll be putting out and I'll be like just praying like, please let the guy turn, let him do something so I can stop and just walk the rest of my run. Or I can just be on a a run or doing something. And what happens to me without a doubt, in my mind, and probably until the day I die, 
I hear my friend Tommy Retzer harassing me, telling me, Gunner, you better start putting out. You're getting slow in your old age, brother. You used to be able to really like crank out these miles. And then like he'll so tick me off in my brain. And I'll keep, you know, Tommy, for those of you who don't know, Tommy Retzer is, was my best friend going through training. He was killed in action in Afghanistan back in 2003. So in my mind, he's still young. He's, he's, I'm aging. He's not aging. And in his young body, in my mind, he is challenging me to, to finish the workout, not to quit, not to turn back. I'm like, Tommy, you don't even know what it means to be 43. This hurts. This is like, the fact that I'm out here, you wouldn't even be out here. You'd be drinking coffee. You know, I'm like arguing with this dead guy in my mind. But he's propelling me forward. And I think that that's sort of the mind, that this is what the author is saying. We have so great a cloud of witnesses. He's listed all of these people who have walked by faith and done amazing things. You in your life probably have Christians that have gone before you, whether it's your grandmother, your parents, somebody who lived for the Lord and had a tremendous impact, and now they're no longer with you. Their witness should be in your mind. As things get tough, as things get hard, you press on. You keep going. He tells us in this, let us. This is the first time he said let us since back in chapter 10. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. He says, as you're running your race, consider the things that are slowing you down. I've done a lot of running over the years, but my bread and butter sport was always swimming. And in swimming, they call it drag, things that are slowing you down. Now, intentionally, you can create drag. There's drag suits that you can put on so that as you're swimming, it's creating resistance. And then the idea is before the race, you would take it off. If you have a big race, guys, including myself, I'm not proud of it, you'd have to shave down your body so that you're getting rid of all of the resistance so that you can uh, make it through the water with the least amount of drag as possible. And he's saying, evaluate your resistance. What things are tangling you up in the Christian life as you pursue God? I see so much military, so I'm sorry about all my, my SEAL stories, but the, the, the Bible has so much that it draws from the military person. SEALs... In our discipline of the military, we're probably the sleekest as far as our gear because we can go from the skydiving to the water to boarding a ship. And anything that's like loosely onto you can be fatal in an instant. And so we go through great pains that if our weapon's not up, that it's, that it's secured and tied down and we, we eliminate things that we don't need for the sake of speed and uh, lack of resistance in the midst of very dynamic situations, I should say. And I'll never forget one day when part of this training, we we showed up at work and they say, hey, we're going up the dunk tank. We're like, huh, the dunk tank? Like, oh yeah, there's a pool up in Miramar and it was a hot day like today. And it's like, oh sweet, we get to go to the dunk tank. Sounds fun, we get to go swimming. Somebody bring the water polo ball, we'll have a good time, we'll... And like, don't bring the water polo guy. Like, all the officers go mad. Like, don't bring the water polo ball. Bring all your gear. I'm like, wait, wait. We're going to go swimming with all our gear? They're like, it gets exactly what's going to happen. 
So it turns out at Miramar, there's a pool with a fake helicopter. And the fake helicopter, what it does is it goes underwater and then it rotates. And then you're to practice getting out. I just realized I just came to peace with dying if I ever was in a helicopter that crashed in the water. Um, but so the first time they say, hey, do it with no gear. Just get in. They dunk you in and you just swim right. Like that was, that was far more difficult than I anticipated. And then they said, now I'll do it with all your gear on. And they have safety divers in there just in case you didn't make it out. And as stuff started like floating off your body as you're there and you're trying to get out, it was a sobering reminder of like, I don't think I really need that thing dangling off of me. I can get away with, I can get rid of that. I can get rid of that. I need that. So I need to figure out a way to like become more efficient in the event of an emergency. So I think the authors, as we're facing persecution, as we're facing trials as they were, you have so great a cloud of witnesses that are propelling you to run your race. But as you're running your race, evaluate the things that are entangling you. There's, there's, there's stuff and then there's sin. And I can't answer this question for you but I can assure you that the scripture is asking you to evaluate your life, to lay it before the Lord and to say, what things are you doing that are hindering your race, your relationship with God? It could, in the context, there's, there's faith. Is, is there something that's hindering your faith? Is there something that's hindering your faithfulness? We live in a world that's filled with doubt, worry, entertainment, recreation, things that keep you and your walk with God tangled up. I think of like a fishing net. Like I hate, I really can't stand fishing line. Like you get it and it gets like all you can do is cut it off and throw it away. But it's describing that there are things in our life that become like fishing line that so just ensnare you that you can't move forward with God. And he's saying, get this stuff out of your life so that you can run. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before you or before us. He goes on to say, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So as you're doing this, as you're stripping stuff off, you're keeping your eyes, you're focusing on him. This whole book has about been focusing on Jesus. If we were to go back to chapter 1, he starts with God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And he lists all of these things about Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his name and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels. And everything from that point is showing us the supremacy of Jesus, that there is nothing greater than him. And so as you run your race, you're to fix your eyes on him. And he goes over some of the same stuff again, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So Jesus, when he was heading to the cross, he looked beyond the cross. He looked to the point when he conquered sin and death and he was sitting at the right hand of the Father, as it's mentioned, when the job is finished. And he said, I'm going to go through this death, through this trial. 
But as I go through it, I'm looking at something greater. And he says, as we fix our eyes on him, verse 3, we're to consider him. This, this considering is to think about actively with effort and precision. It's not just a casual pondering about Jesus. This is examine him. Think about him. Consider all that he did. All the claims of the scriptures. Consider him who has endured. And at this point, I need to stop. I need... Well, don't get your hopes up. I'm not stopping. I'm pausing. Should be careful. The child in me was like, the pastor's done. <laughs> I'm not done. Who has endured? This, this word is uh, hupomeno. It's a word that means to, uh, to stand under something. Uh, it's an important word. It means to stand under, to remain, um, to stand firm, not to quit, to, to remain in place as pressure is being applied to you. This word at this point has been used a number of times in the immediate context. If we were to go back to uh, chapter 10, verse 36, it's used there speaking of endurance. Chapter 12, verse 1, it's used speaking of endurance. Uh, Verse 2, it's used again here in verse 3 and then verse 7. It goes back and forth between endurance and endure. He says, for consider him who has endured, who has stood under, who has not given up ground. Concerning such hostility by sinners against himself, we're speaking of the cross. As I go through this and consider this word, um, you know, they say when the cat is away, the mice will play. Well, Anna was gone for two weeks and the, the mice played a little bit. And one thing that I played is I watched a movie that she really didn't want to watch. But I, I, I read a book a couple years ago that was fascinating. We both read it together. We loved the book. And there was a movie, but she was like, I don't know if I got the stomach to watch the movie. And so while she was gone, I watched the movie. But the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini, the Olympic athlete, you guys know the story. I don't remember it so much in the book, but in the movie there's a scene as as he's in uh, torture camp, uh, they, they moved to where they were kind of digging out coal near the end of the war. And the, the guard who had always picked on him because he knew he was an Olympic athlete sort of singled him out again. Like he tripped and hurt his ankle or I forget what it was. But he's like, you go over there and you just hold this log. And this whole scene, the guy's like holding the log, like shaky, not sure if he can go any further. All the other prisoners are sort of looking at, at, at Zamperini and saying like, oh man, I don't know how much he can go. They're just kind of like, you can see it in their eyes. And it seems like hours have gone by. And when the guard thinks, I'm just, he's about broken. And if he drops it, I think he can go execute him. But then at that point, Zamperini basically lifts the log up and over his head, and he's just shaking. And you can just see all of the prisoners basically, they're not actually applauding, but you can see it in their eye, like, go, go. And you can see the guard just breaking, like, this guy's not going to quit. And he eventually lets him set down the log. But that picture is this, the, that's what endurance is. That's enduring, to stand under the pressure. And we're told that Jesus endured in this way on the cross. And the part that should grip us is it says, so that, why did Jesus endure the cross? Of course, to pay the penalty for our sin. But look what the author of Hebrews says, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It sort of insinuates that the readers are growing weary and losing heart. And as they're 
growing weary and losing heart and thinking about their trials and tribulations and starting to feel sorry for themselves. The author says, you need to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Consider him. Consider his suffering. And as you consider his suffering and you consider what he did on the cross, as you do this, we're told that Jesus did this. So that as we focus on him, we will not grow weary. We will not lose heart. We will gain strength by looking at the one who saved us. Verse 4, he says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We know that they were suffering, but the author lets us know that they haven't yet experienced martyrdom. They hadn't started losing their lives for standing for the gospel like those in the last part of Hebrews 11 were. He says, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. He said, why are you guys going off course? Don't drift. Don't. It was in the scriptures. It's in Proverbs chapter 3, 11 through 12. It's right there, guys, about suffering. And so he quotes this verse from Proverbs. He says, my son, do not, rec- do not regard lightly, lightly the discipline of the Lord. And discipline is not punishment. These are two different things. Lis- discipline is training. It's a difficult thing that comes upon your life. And we see at the very end of this in verse 11 that that discipline is a tool to guide you. There's actually encouragement if you find yourself being disciplined. The person who's doing the discipline saying, I believe in you. I believe that you can be corrected. I believe that you can learn from this. Sorry it's painful. Sorry you're having to go through this. But you have to go through this so that you can grow and develop into what you need to develop into. In this case, this section is not about parenting. There's a lot of good lessons about parenting. But here he's saying, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. So what's happening now is the author of Hebrews wants the readers to adjust their perspective. You're going through a difficult time. Are trials coming your way? Are you suffering? Are you struggling? Our inclination is to step out from under it, let it fall, and you to have an ice cream sundae. But he's saying, as you feel the pressure, don't slip out from under it, but change your perspective because... It's very possibly this is the hand of God doing a work in your life and good will come out of it. I love the rawness of the section. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. There's that word. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He's saying everybody's suffering right now. All followers of Christ are suffering. This is the beginning. And if you're not suffering, maybe you're not a follower of Christ. He's saying, but this suffering is a discipline of the Lord, and it's done out of his love for you. But if you're without discipline, of which we all have become partakers, verse 8, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they, the fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us, one, for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, I just want to laugh because we all want to shout amen. All discipline for the moment does not seem to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, that's the key of discipline. It's a training tool. As you've been trained by discipline, look at what results and afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This whole passage, looking at the bigger picture, the end of chapter 11, he ends with these saints that by faith went through great, great trials and tribulations and suffering. Verses 3 or 4 through 11 deal with changing your perspective. If you're suffering, if you're going through difficult times, don't think of it as like God's punishing you, God's trying to like, what a, like first it could be your sin. If it's your sin, get rid of it, stop it. Lay it aside, run your race. But if you've examined your heart and you, there, for no other reason you're suffering for the sake of the name of Christ, or for whatever reason, he's encouraging you to understand that God is sovereign, God is greater than anything that you're going through. And if you're going through a trying time, stand under it with joy, understanding that it's the love of God that's disciplining you, shaping you, molding you into his image so that you could experience his holiness, that you would produce the fruit of righteousness within you as only difficult times can produce in you. And as this is happening, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's this call to press on, to persevere. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. Trust God for the results. I want to end with a story I stumbled upon this week. It's a true story. I don't know much about the ministry today. They seem to be sort of a commune type place, so I'm not really endorsing them. But they still do exist today. But I, I stumbled upon this story of their early days. In 1940... Clarence Jordan founded Koinonia Farm in Georgia as a haven for racial unity in, and cooperation. In 1954, the Ku Klux Klan burned every building on the farm except Jordan's home. In the midst of the raid, Jordan recognized the voice of a local newspaper reporter. The next day, that reporter showed up for a story about the arson while the rubble was still smoldering. He found Jordan in a field planting seeds, and he said to Jordan, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night, and I came to do a story on the closing of your farm. And Jordan just kept planting and hoeing. The reporter continued his prodding. With no response from Jordan, finally the reporter said, You've got two PhDs. You've put 14 years into this farm and now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? With that statement, Jordan stopped hoeing. He said to the reporter, you just don't get it, do you? 
you don't understand us Christians. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. I think this is the heart of this message, is that we're called to faithfulness. Good things can happen in the midst of your being faithful. Difficult things could come, but don't let the circumstances or the outcomes weigh how you view what God is doing. Because God is faithful. The work of the cross was sufficient. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. We have access to the holiest of holies. What God does with us in this life, whether good times or bad times, that's in his hands. We've been called to run the race faithfully. And we need his help to do that. Father, we do come before you and we... Thank you for these stories of the saints, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Modern days, as we think of Tyndale and, and others, and White Wycliffe, and others who sacrificed all in their faithfulness to you. And Lord, as I look at my life in comparison to theirs, I, I, I really feel like my life is insignificant. But somehow our lives in Christ connect with these great saints and that we have a role, we have a calling that you have prepared us for. And so, Lord, I pray for each one in this room that you would help us to understand what it is that you have set us apart to do in this life. We pray that you would give us a greater understanding of the gift or gifts that you have given to us to serve you, to serve your body, which is the church, and that you would help us to walk faithfully with you. Lord, we acknowledge that when trying times come, when difficulties come our way, it's so easy for us to want to get out from underneath them. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to increase and our faith, so that we can endure this race that you have called us to. We look to you for encouragement, for hope. We pray that this would be a church that would link arms with one another, that we would help each other in our journeys with you. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.